According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. As always, turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, verses 1 through 4. And uh, our parallel passage is coming from Mark chapter 8, verses... uh, 10 through 13. We will also be looking at the healing of a blind man in Mark 8, verses 14 through 26. We've combined episode 44 with episode 45. We made mention of that last week where we are combining uh, episode 44, Pharisees increase attack, with episode 45, Disciples' Carelessness Condemned and Blind Man Healed. So if you're following in the, in the uh, harmony of the Gospels, you can uh, look at both 44 and 45. We're combining them into one overall outline that has nine particular points of study. All right, before we get any of this, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that each believer priest is equipped with the Holy Spirit. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that we have this morning to assemble together and receive instruction. We do ask for uh, distractions to be set aside and concentration upon the truth of your word that we might learn what it means to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I pray that we would come to appreciate the uh, snare and the danger for what it is and to recognize that that, uh, those with uh, tremendous teaching are at great risk, uh, perhaps the most vulnerable. And Father, I pray that we would come to recognize that and be on guard against it so as to not become the Pharisees of our own generation. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. All right. In our outline to this point, we uh, are dealing with points six and seven. We ran out of time with point seven. And uh, I'll just back up to point six. Jesus repeated his earlier message regarding an evil and adulterous generation. And I was looking just a moment ago uh, to see if I had this slideshow available. I'm sure I do. I just wasn't spotting it. The slideshow available for what we, were, what we did when we taught Galilean ministry episode number 25. That's what GM 25 is about. In the Galilean ministry episode 25 was Jesus' answers to a demand for a sign. And it went back to chapter 12. And if you hold your finger here in Matthew 16, we can look back to this just to show you that this is a repeated demand and a repeated uh, uh, mechanism. It's a, it's a ruse. They don't really want a sign. They just want to keep demanding that he show them a sign. And they'll do it again. They'll do it again. And no matter what he shows them, they're not going to be satisfied or content or even acknowledge that he's shown them anything. And they'll say, well, well show me something else. And it's it's a it's a disinformation technique. It's a de, it's a false debate technique. It's it's evil to the core. It's used to this very day in a variety of uh, political and and theological debating applications, to where you you will win every debate. At least in your own mind, you will win every debate because your opposition has yet to produce any evidence. And and if you're scoring in a debate format where uh, one side lists five points of evidence, the other side lists four points of evidence, but he was able to discredit or dismiss uh, two or three of your points, well, then that brings you down to where you only have two or three left, and you have four. And so in, in a debate realm, you have presented better evidence, and you have refuted theirs, you win the debate as it were, if it's being objectively scored, if it's being graded, if, it's go- if there's an impartial evaluator to observe the debate proceedings. Well, if you control the debate and you're able to dismiss out of hand any evidence that the other side puts forth, well, then you win every time because uh, you, you get your two or three points out there, however many you want to make, and uh, they make their seven or eight points or however many they want to make, but you don't acknowledge any of them. So in your mind, they have yet to say even one thing, right? And you say, well, show me, show me, show me a verse. And you give them a verse. And they say, well, that doesn't count. So they throw it away. And in their own mind, they dismiss it as if you never showed them anything. And that's what happens here. They say, show us a sign. Well, he's already done that. He's done that repeatedly. And um, the, 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 the real key here is that they're not willing to accept anything. 
and that no matter what he shows them, they're not going to be satisfied because they're not rejecting the signs, they're rejecting the person. And it doesn't matter what signs come, they have already rejected the person. And that's, that's key. And you and I will discover that in our witnessing, in our apologetics, in, in different folks. If, I'll answer questions until the next blue moon, so long as they're legitimate questions from hunger, from someone who wants to know the truth. But if they're a critic, a skeptic, if they hate God, if they're not listening anyway, and they've already rejected the person, that's pearls before swine. And I'm, I'm not going to waste my time. I've, I've got to redeem my time for the days are evil. I've got a flock to feed. I've got things to do. And uh, if, if they just want to do the endless debate, well, where is the debater of this age? That's, uh, that's, that's their department, not mine. So uh, hopefully these kind of lessons will, will uh, remind us of these things and will equip us to be able to just to cut them loose and say, you know what? When you really want answers, come back. Until then... Uh, we have a situation here where it says an evil and adulterous generation. Is that what you're really dealing with? So as I read from Matthew chapter 12, some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Never mind the fact that he's just shown them signs. He has cast out demons. They accused him of, well, you just did it by the power of Beelzebub. See, that's the way that they can dismiss the sign and say, you haven't done a sign. And uh, he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. He says, You don't need miracles. You, what you need is to get saved. You need to understand what the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is all about. Accept Christ. Accept the person. Become regenerate. Learn the... Uh, and then you'll be equipped to be able to learn spiritual truth. All right, so when you see the demand that comes in chapter 12, when you see the demand come again in chapter 16, you, they're still doing it when he's hanging on the cross. They still do it when he's hanging on the cross. They said, cry out to God, see if he'll deliver you, show us a sign. See, and it's, uh, oh, it just breaks the heart. All right, so back to chapter 16 now. They ask for him to show a sign from heaven, and he, he nails them in verse 2. He replied to them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. And we had a little bit of fun with that last week. We, we went to some proverbs, just some earthly expressions, some idioms, some uh, old wives' tales, some other uh, proverbs and, and statements and things that we just accept. We don't even think, give them a second thought. We just readily accept them, and they're just maxims or... Uh, sayings, and we don't give them another thought. And, and they're readily, we swallow them. It's just we, we live in the world, and, and we don't think about it. And occasionally, if we're forced to think about it, we'll stop, take the time, apply doctrine. And you all did very well with that last week, and we don't have to re-engage in, in that particular exercise. We want to be able to evaluate those based on the Word of God, though, as far as whether they are accurate or not. These guys, though, the, the, they'll accept an earthly parable without question, and yet they will endlessly... Uh, put scripture to uh, to the nth degree, to the fine tooth comb. Particularly, legalism will do that. See, and they want to know, well, who's my neighbor, or how much is enough, or uh, they've got all these lists of do's and don'ts, and what do I have to do to find favor? And the end, and it's it's sad. All right, point seven. Then, in re recrossing the Sea of Galilee, the disciples forgot to bring any bread, or they neglected to bring bread. And this then takes us into the return trip, the return, return, return trip. How many times have they crossed the, the sea just since the feeding of the 5,000 and, uh, and leading up to the feeding of the 5,000? It's been back and forth multiple times. And uh, so let's take a look at it in um, verse 5, uh, verse 4. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. And the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And this is a neglect. This is uh, uh, the term that's utilized there where they had overlooked through inattentiveness. They had uh, overlooked the fact that uh, their, their commissary or their stores were, were down to a minimum. But they'd also failed to ask whether bread would be necessary in light of the multiple miracles where he had uh, multiplied the loaves and the fish. It may be that they're, uh, they're able to travel a lot lighter these days, if you think about it. You don't, have to, you don't have to pack for 20, you just have to pack for one, and he'll multiply it and feed everybody, and you're fine, right? If... He's willing, if the Father is willing to grant that miracle from this point forward, then 
the, uh, the uh, provision of stores is not, uh, not as necessary. And we'll, we'll examine that. First of all, under subpoint A, there's three things here we're going to glean. The disciples' preoccupation with temporal matters made them forgetful of uh, or negligent concerning spiritual matters. That's where the real negligence had come in. And we'll highlight that for you when he rebukes them here in this message. So Jesus said to them, watch out and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. All right, some of you are still writing. I'll let you, I'll let you write. I'll slow down. So the disciples came to the other side of the sea. They had forgotten to bring any bread. Is that a problem? Is that a problem? It's really not, because the Lord's going to make provision for that. The problem is that when he gives them a message... They're so caught up in the temporal life things that they fail to recognize that he was speaking to them of a real spiritual snare. And they were just so guilty over having forgotten bread that they weren't even thinking in spiritual terms. All right. And uh, this could happen in all sorts of different uh, contexts. So when Jesus says to them, watch out, that's a, that's a warning, verse 6, and beware. Two different imperatives, but they combine together. Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is an important message to deliver. And they're not going to get it. Because all they can think about is the earthly food. All they can think about is their guilt over what, where they fell short or what they forgot to bring along. And as I said in the, in the point here, there, it's a preoccupation. Think about the preoccupations you, uh, you and I come with when we come to Bible class. Why it's so important that we start with silent prayer. It's more than just simply um, confession of sin to be in fellowship. Yes, you want to be in fellowship, but it's got to be more than that. We need to make sure that our preoccupations are set aside. To Whatever it is, if we're so wrapped up in something uh, that our mind can't let it go, maybe we're caught up in, in uh, finances, we're caught up in money, we're caught up in bills, we're caught up in health, or whatever it is. We're caught up in, uh, in, in marital testing or, or what, whatever. And so that's in the back of our mind. It's, it's rolling around up there. You know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one that does this? And, and so, you know, you got these thoughts and they're all jumbled and they're all rolling around and they're going in cycles and, and whatever. And you're supposed to be focused on the word. And so a message goes out and, uh, and you don't take it the right way. Why? Because you don't have the objectivity. You have the preoccupation. We're supposed to have our eyes fixed firmly on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, but instead of our mind being fixed, our mind is, is loose and it's rolling around, dealing with all these other things. And so he's talking about leaven in a spiritual application. And we'll go back to examine the leaven. It is teaching, and we see that from verse 12. We use the immediate context to define our terms, our symbols. And so, finally then, they understood in verse 12 that he did not say beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And we're going to demonstrate how that teaching comes in the context of these demands for a sign and in the context of these uh, expectations of legalism. Um, but they heard the word leaven. They could not put it into a spiritual frame. They could not put it into a spiritual frame to consider that he was talking about teaching, to consider that there is a real spiritual life application to make. They heard the word leaven, and they immediately put it into the context where their mind was already locked in. Does that make sense? So if you come here and, and your um, preoccupation, whatever it is, you can hear a message but not hear the message. Because you're going to take a term, or you're going to take a phrase, or you're going to take a verse. And instead of examining it in the light of where it should be examined, you're injecting it into where your mind's already preoccupied. And in some cases, there, it's going to spark a mental attitude sin. It's going to spark a reaction. With them, it was guilt. So let's see how this works. He's, uh, Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So they began to discuss this amongst themselves, saying, he said that because we do not bring any bread. Okay? Now think about it. If it's, if it's in a financial realm, it's in a financial realm, 
and, and you're struggling with bills or income or diff- money is tight, different things are going on. Uh, you had unforeseen expenses that really cramped everything else and, 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 and you're hurting. Okay? Now that's the reality of it. We're not diminishing that, but what we're saying is, is that if that's a preoccupation, you need to ask the Lord to, to take that captive. Take every thought captive in obedience to Christ Jesus because for this hour, we don't want the preoccupation to ensnare the message. But if, if you're sitting here with a preoccupation on money and then the pastor starts talking about grace or starts talking about how the Corinthian uh, or how the Macedonian churches supported his missionary travels or freely you have received, freely you give, you're going to take a message coming from the pastor and instead of leaving it in the realm where it's supposed to be, you take it over here and you put it in your, in your money problems and you get the mental attitude sin that goes right with it. Why does he, who does he think he is? Who does he think he is? Asking for more money. Church has plenty of money. Doesn't he know that I've got these bills stacking up? How does he expect me to give more money than I'm already giving? I give more than anybody else in this church. And blah, 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 blah. Or looking up on the bulletin board and say, we know how much money he makes. See? Occasionally, there's a dirty little part of me that wants to just post everybody's tax form on the bulletin board and say, there it is. All right? Yeah, I'm tired of being the only one in the church whose uh, who's, uh, gross salary is posted in public record. Yeah, right? We've got 80 members. Let's put 80 W. Let's put 80 W4 forms up there. And <laughs> no, I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. But you see what can happen. You lose objectivity like that, and you think he's preaching at me. It's all about me at that point, right? The disciples here, oh, he says, he's saying that because we didn't bring any bread. And they're all wrapped up in themselves. Oh, it's all about us. It's all about me. No, he said that because they just had an encounter with the Pharisees and that leaven was on display and these men are being trained for ministry and he doesn't want them to plunge into the same pride that the Pharisees have plunged into or their ministry is over. He has to guard against it himself or his ministry is over. Not only is his ministry over, but forget going to the cross. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. When he warns them to beware, you understand it's a struggle, it's a temptation that they're, that they're vulnerable to. See, like when he was in the garden. He said, why are you sleeping? Can't you stay awake? He says, watch and beware. That you may not enter in temptation for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's warning his disciples of the things that are going to derail them from ministry. It could be it could be something else. I mean, it could be uh, <laughs> you know, it could be something with immorality. It could be a sin issue. It could be it could be any number of things. And this is where the Holy Spirit gets really convicting. And when some things get spotlighted, when uh, you know, maybe the pastor is talking about adultery. But he's talking about the spiritual adultery, about serving other gods, about not serving the Lord your God, about other things. And, well, your mind didn't, didn't keep it in that realm. It's supposed to be in this context, but you've got a preoccupation going on over here. Right? In the, in the realms of lust or realms of whatever else. And so the, the word adultery comes in and immediately, it's just the mail slot, don't let it scare you. All right? I used to study in this building. I, I know every creek, every every... That was just the mailman putting something through the slot. Could have been the termite guy when he finishes his inspection or whatever. Yeah, don't let that little sound scare you. What was I illustrating? Oh, uh, adultery. And, and the pastor's giving a message, and but you can't keep it in the spiritual realm because of a preoccupation going on over here. Again, guilt is produced or shame is produced or some other kind of reaction is produced and the preoccupied believer fails to be edified because he fails to pay attention to the message as it's being delivered and that's what happens here he gives them a warning and they don't have the first clue what he's warning them about because of their preoccupation now at what point does a preoccupation become carnality at what point See, um, when, you know, through a sin of omission, you know that you're supposed to be humble under the authority of the word of God. 
and you're daydreaming, you're goofing off. At what point does that become carnality? Or is it simply an immaturity? Jesus said, uh, Jesus, aware of this, said, you men of little faith. You men of little faith. So we recognize there's two things that could be at work. In, in Matthew's record, it is a faith deficiency. Or subpoint B, men of little faith. That if, in your own thinking, you find that you are being preoccupied by other areas rather than occupied with Christ, rather than focused on the things above, rather than uh, let your mind dwell on these things, Philippians 4. Uh, if you find that you, you can't get your mind centered where it needs to be, it's a faith deficiency. And we know what to do if you lack faith. James chapter 1 says, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally, generously, and without reproach. So we find that it's a faith deficiency. Oligopistoi, we're told here, men of little faith. Why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000? And how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000? And how many large baskets you picked up? See, I think it's important that these numbers are, are skewed and backwards the way they are. The first miracle started with fewer loaves and fed more people. In a Jewish context, fewer loaves fed more people. Right? Five loaves fed 5,000. In the second time with Gentiles, it was more loaves, but it fed less people. Seven loaves fed 4,000. Remember, we did the math a couple classes ago about people per loaf kind of thing. Anyway, the first miracle was more miraculous. The second miracle fed fewer people per loaf. And the point being, which the disciples couldn't grasp, is that it's not the quantity of what you have on hand. I hope we understand that. Whatever work assignment we're given, and the tools and equipping that we have, we have what he's supplied. So if he supplied us five loaves, it's sufficient. If he supplied us seven loaves, it's sufficient. If he's only supplied one loaf, it's sufficient. When Jesus Christ is your traveling companion, one loaf is sufficient. All right? He'll just multiply and feed however many you got. And it doesn't matter if, if you've got 5,000 for dinner or 7,000 for dinner or 4,000 for dinner or 100,000 for dinner. Jesus Christ is sufficient. And so uh, if we uh, are proceeding on the basis of faith, then uh, none of the rest of that matters. I, I think from this point forward... The, the multiplying of loaves and fish was, was routine. We know the typology for that was the, the provision of manna in the wilderness. And once that started, that, that lasted until, until the end, until they entered into the promised land and the conquest. When they crossed the Jordan River, that's the day that their manna provision stopped. I think from this point forward, from this point to the cross, they were being provided for. It was only after the, the cross that finally Peter said, hey, let's go fishing. <laughs> Why? Well, he was hungry. All right. All right. So there's a faith deficiency. Let's turn over to Mark because there's a second issue besides faith. And what happens is if you grow satisfied with a diminished faith, in Mark it's called hardness of heart. Mark 8:17. The Mark parallel is rather interesting for a number of different levels. Uh, but verse 14, they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. Well, that's enough. One loaf. Plenty. One loaf can feed a thousand. And he was giving orders to them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, there's a unique uh, detail that only Mark records. And we're going to examine what this leaven is about. It is teaching, but it's also teaching with a mindset. And that's uh, that's uh, we have to be cautious about. So they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? See, proceeding with a diminished faith capacity for a prolonged period of time will harden the heart. 
Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? You know, there's a point where at least with a, with a, a, a baby believer, with a, with a newborn Christian who doesn't know any better, at least he knows he doesn't know any better. And he has an, the eagerness of his youth, the eagerness of his new conversion, new salvation. He wants to learn like a newborn babe. And you can teach that. The problem is, with adolescent believers or believers that are approaching maturity, is that you get uh, the, the diminished faith capacity where you get satisfied with where you are, what you know, what you understand, and you stop growing. You stop bringing application to what you have seen and understood. Here it comes in more of a question and answer format. Having eyes, do you know, or, uh, verse 19, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And he made them answer him. And they said to him, twelve. See, and so he's interacting with them and he's forcing them to give him the answers. When I broke seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? Are you not getting this? Don't sweat the quantity and don't get worked up over earthly food. The Lord's their provision. He's going to take care of that. They need to pay attention to the spiritual lessons that are being taught. And if they, if they can't pick up on the spiritual lessons, they're no better than the crowds, the multitudes. They just wanted to make him king because he could feed their bellies. They didn't give a hoot about his teaching. So the Lord's come to expect that from the multitudes. But from these guys, they better be tuned into the doctrine and they better be tuned in really quickly because he's, he's a year out from the cross. It's a hard road for this final year. And then after that, he's gone and they have to step up as apostles in the church age. So uh, it gets a little tough with him on this. And this is the kind of thing I've got a lot more freedom with uh, Radley and Skyler and Cliff and B3 and these guys that, 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 that are training. Get a lot more freedom. Hit them hard. Because it's serious business. If they're not if they're not equipped to deal with it, then how are they going to deal with it? <laughs> so, hit them hard. All right, because we clearly don't want to be in the oligopistos little faith category, and we don't want to be in the hardened heart category. So he makes them answer, and then he asks, "Do you not yet understand?" Point eight: Bewaring of the leaven. Leaven is a picture; it's a symbol. Bewaring of the leaven of the Pharisees is their teaching. And that's clearly spelled out for us here. Back to Matthew 16 again. Verse 12 clearly identifies that leaven equals teaching. don't have to be a brilliant pastor to figure that out. Just read the text. It says, How is it that you did not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but the teaching of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So bewaring the leaven of the Pharisees is their teaching. But finish the sentence. It's their teaching in the context of repeated demands for signs from heaven. It's their teaching in the context of repeated demands for signs from heaven. It's not teaching in kind of an isolated, academic, sterile um, situation. It's teaching in this context. It's teaching with their pride at work. It's teaching with their rebellion at work. It's teaching with their concern for their own preeminence. All right? That is the leaven. That's what gets across. That's what can influence. Think about what leaven does. If, if you think of leaven as, as simply one element of a loaf, right? We've got bed, bread bakers here this morning. Bread bakers. Right? Not bed breakers, but bread bakers. All right? Leaven is, is... What else do you have in bread besides leaven? You've got flour and you've got... What else? Stuff. Sugar. Okay. Butter. Anything else? Ethel's not giving away her secret recipe here. Salt. Oh, yeah, you can put all kinds of stuff in there. 
make banana bread? Are you going to make what kind of bread? Oh, I'm getting hungry. He's not worried about the flour. He doesn't say beware of the flour. He doesn't say beware of the sugar. He doesn't say beware of the bananas. Beware of the pecans. It's beware of the leaven. Think about what leaven pictures. What leaven accomplishes. Think about what leaven's a picture of in terms of sin. Think about the nature of the Pharisees' teaching and the influence here where an attitude comes across. Where an attitude becomes injected. Where an attitude infests more than uh, just them. And how it can influence the Pharisees. Uh, how the Pharisees' leaven, attitude, can become the disciples' leaven, attitude. And when the disciples are trained, when they're ordained, when they're sent into ministry, Jesus wants them to be an imitator of him and not an imitator of those Pharisees. Because it's that leaven of the Pharisees that's going to get injected there. Or the leaven of Herod, as uh, Mark points out. And that's something else. The Pharisees' leaven was prideful and it was in, in, in the injection of legalism. The uh, Herod's leaven was also prideful, but it was the injection of uh, selfish hedonism. If you understand what Herod's court was all about, what Herod's personal life was all about, and, uh, and all the rest, that's, that's a leaven influence as well. And you end up with these uh, preachers, you end up with these religious charlatans, and, and they just simply use their influence in a in charisma in 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 a church to uh you know gather women around themselves and and uh prey on the flock and that kind of thing that's that's the leaven of herod self-centeredness and hedonism the leaven of the pharisees is also self-centered not so much in the lascivious hedonism approach but in the legalism and the pride in the on the other end of things, the ascetic end of things, we're holier than thou kind of approach. And that's that's no good either. You want to have some kind of a pastor that thinks he's the, the greatest Christian in the history of the church age? That he's the greatest saint, perfect, never fails, never sins, better than everybody else in the church? Is that what you want? Well, that's what you get if the, if the pastor has the Pharisee attitude, if that leaven of the Pharisees has spread. So here in this context of repeated demands for signs from heaven, we realize that these Pharisees have no interest in the signs. They have no interest in what God the Father has to say, no interest in what the message is about. They simply use this as a challenge, seeking to bring about his downfall and seeking to secure their own position, their own place. All right. The last element, point nine. The blind man. Now, for this we have to return to Mark. It's not recorded in Matthew. It's only found in Mark. It's like the guy with the deafness when Christ stuck his fingers in his ears. There's another episode that's limited to Mark. Mark 8, 22 through 26. So right after the leaven message, he was saying to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida. And when they get to the other side again, and, he, and then they brought a blind man to Jesus and imploring him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on, his, on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored, and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. All right, verses 22 through 26. Point nine, the blind man outside Bethsaida is unique to Mark. Not counted in Matthew, not recorded in Luke. The provision of blurred vision. Now, this is kind of neat. This is a picture, and this is coming right after Jesus said, you better catch the spiritual message of everything I do. Right? When he said, beware the leaven, and they, they, all there are thinking in earthly terms. And he says, you've got to understand the spiritual message of everything I do, everything I say. And now he's got a chance to do a miracle. So they better catch on as he heals this man's blindness. All right. Now, remember when he did the, uh, the, the man with the deafness? 
What did he do? Took him off by himself. Took him off by himself, did the sign language, took his fingers in his ears, right? Here's something very similar. He's taking him off by himself, taking him out of the village, away from the crowds. So they, in verse 22, they came. They brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch them. There's a crowd there waiting for him to come back, and they bring this blind man. But what does Jesus do? Gets him away from the crowd, gets him out of the city, gets him away from all the attention, because these disciples need to start making application today. They need to recognize the spiritual message behind everything that he does. So taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village after spitting on his eyes. Now, whether that was a direct, you know, spit in his face or he spit on his hands and then rubbed it in his eyes or whatever, we don't know. But uh, in laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? This is the first time that, that Jesus ever did a healing or a miracle or anything like that in stages you know, most of the time, he didn't even have to go anywhere. He could just give the word or just say, and, and, you know, from whatever distance away, a healing took place and whatnot. But this is very specific, and this is spelled out step by step, each process of the way, so that the disciples can see this. Do you see this? Do you see this? Do you see what I'm doing now? Do you see what I'm doing now? He's teaching them something very important. And so he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. That's okay. <laughs> that's not exactly 2020. If you're looking at a man and they look like a tree, that's a problem. You don't have some very clear vision at that point. So he said, all right, let's do this again. So again, he laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and was restored. And began to see everything clearly. Now, why the steps? Why the stages? Because Jesus is teaching the disciples. So the provision, and here's what it's teaching. Here's the spiritual message behind the earthly miracle. The provision of blurred vision followed by clear vision illustrated the stages, the stages through which the disciples themselves perceived Jesus' message. The disciples have to start realizing that they're not getting the whole picture. They're seeing a blurred stage. And they're seeing a little bit more. Ideally, they, they want to see clearly, but they're not going to see clearly until after the resurrection. There's a lot of teaching he gives them that they just don't catch on until after the resurrection. But they're seeing things in stages. And while they're seeing things in stages, they realize that they still need him to make things more clear. That they don't have it figured out. See, the, the minute they think they've got things figured out, that's the pride of the Pharisees. I, I, I think this... Two things are happening here. First of all, this public rejection. After the feeding of the 5,000 and after he makes them all mad, won't, won't redo the miracle, the, the, the crowd's hostility increases, the Pharisees' hostility increases. Uh, he's got one more Passover to go before the cross. This last year is going to be his hardest year. So that's going on. But also the, the, the training of the disciples has gotten to the point where they've gone out on their own now in a two-by-two -two training ministry. And they've come back. And they've reported. They've done things. They've taught. They've done miracles. They've cast out demons. They've done things. And this is where they're, they're most vulnerable. See? And uh, he's got to keep them close. He's got to keep them to, uh, to teach them, like with this blind man, that, okay, their eyes have been opened. They've seen some things. But they haven't seen it all yet. And they're still seeing bl in, in uh, a blurry condition. They've got, uh, they've got more to go. They're not ready for their full ministries yet. They still need the Lord to provide for the remainder of that site to be clarified. So this should be clear for them. And, and I love the way that he's walking it through. I love the way that he's doing it in private. I love the way that he's using this to teach his disciples that uh, when he's giving them a spiritual message, don't just get wrapped up in earthly things, but learn what it is that... Uh, that they, should be, that they should be gleaning from the miracle, from the message, from everything that he does. All right. Now, that wraps up. Any questions on that? Anything on the miracle? Why did he do it in two stages? Or why? what it was a picture of? How it pictured the disciples themselves? Radley. That's right. This man wasn't even from Bethsaida. He was from some, some other town nearby. They brought him to Bethsaida, Bethsaida, hoping that that's where the Lord would come back. And so he takes him outside of town, 
Then he says, don't even go back into that town. Go on back home to wherever it is you live. Don't let this Bethsaida, ta- uh, don't let Bethsaida know that, uh, that the healing has taken place. There will be more of that. In fact, it's coming up here in Mark. And um, verse 30, just a few verses down. He warned them not to, to tell no one about him. And these are the 12 now that he's talking to. This is Peter and the remainder of the apostles. We have passed a key hinge, and the episode we're about to start here, let's go back to Matthew 16. I want to spend most of, of uh, the rest of this hour in Matthew 16, and we'll introduce what really we're going to start on next week is the uh, Peter's great confession. We're going to spend some time in there. We'll end up Catholic. <laughs> right? You know, Jesus gives the keys to Peter. He's the first pope, and, you know, he's got the, Peter's the key holder. Right? So we'll just use our final 18 minutes this morning to introduce this, and we'll get a good start on it for next week. Um, there is so much here in this chapter, but when uh, you'll note in Matthew 16, we've covered down through verse 12. We get to verse 13, and we start. he starts really grilling them. Um, who do the people say I am? Who do you say that I am? See... Uh, when I just like uh, in the in the Mark record, when I uh, with the five loaves and we fed five thousand, how many baskets were left? And they answered twelve. And with, with the seven loaves, we fed four thousand. How many baskets were left? And they said seven. He is grilling them. He's asking them questions. He's making sure they comprehend. He's making sure they remember the things that they've observed, the things that they've seen. Now he wants them to evaluate where the crowds are. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? He wants them to evaluate. He wants them to demonstrate that they have a spiritual discernment. See, such as I might do with the men we're training here. And say, uh, you're going to be a pastor someday. Tell me, uh, what do you think uh, uh, What do you think about the spiritual health of Austin Bible Church? And the young man says, oh, I think it's great. Why? Oh, because, uh, you know, uh, all this money is coming in. Really? Money is an indicator of the spiritual health of the church? I think we've got some more training. <laughs> right? The parking spaces are all full. Really? Parking spaces are an indication of the spiritual health of this church? I think we've got some more training to do. Say, we've never had more for prayer meeting. Prayer meeting is, has, is seeing the best support and the best attendance and the best fruit that it's ever had. Ah, I think you're on to something. I think that could be an indicator. See. Or ask, where do you think the uh, struggles are at the moment? Struggles? What are you talking about? Nobody's struggling. Everybody's doing great. Really? Spend more time at prayer meeting. <laughs> Learn what the struggles are. Don't be so wrapped up in self that you think that you're doing fine, so everybody's doing fine. Because everybody else's struggles belong to you. All things belong to you. You belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. So if all things belong to you, that includes your brother over here that's wrestling with the biggest discouragement he's ever wrestled with because of, of whatever, whatever, you know, he's lost his job, he needs employment, his, uh, his, his confidence is, is shaken, he's, he's uh, not finding a new job like he thought he would or uh, whatever else is going on, and he's really worked up over it. Why are you not sharing that burden? So there's, there's tremendous value in being able to evaluate a leader, being able to evaluate a shepherd. Of course, these guys are going to be apostles. But still, to be able to evaluate a spiritual leader while they're being trained, while they're developing these skills and techniques and, and the aspects of their gift, if, uh, if they're not yet to the point that they're aware of things going on, and, and it's not, it's not um, I mean, it should be apparent. You should have a heart that, that uh, that wonders, that questions when you see a brother with a gloomy face. And and if you really have a shepherd heart that would be sensitive to that to say, hmm, 
Looks like uh, this, this brother here is grieving. Looks like this sister could use encouragement or something on a pick up on that. If, if, if you're really thick as a brick and, and, and <laughs> have no awareness. I'm serious. This is the kind of thing where we start to examine and say, you know, we have indicators that, uh, that the teaching has never been in question, but we really are examining the shepherding side of things, the pastor side of things. Are you a pastor teacher or are you a teacher? If the shepherd heart's not there, then you're not a pastor teacher. See, and uh, you know, like the Dallas seminary professor I met, he he told everybody right up front that he's not doesn't have a shepherd's heart, that he loves people, but he wouldn't have the shepherd heart to put up with what pastors put up with. He says that's why he teaches in seminary, <laughs> so uh, he can equip pastors to pastor because he knows that's not him. All right, so who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. That's kind of ridiculous. But that's what the public opinion, what the view was. That's what some were thinking. Others say you're Elijah, right? They've had this expectation of Elijah ever since Malachi. For 400 years, they've been waiting for Elijah to come. Jews today are still waiting for Elijah to come. They set an empty spot at their Passover table. That's empty spot there in that ta- place setting and all that. That's, that's for Elijah just in case he shows up tonight. All right? So some of these uh, Bible students thought, well, hey, you know, here's a guy, he's doing miracles, he's teaching from the Old Testament, he's teaching from the Bible, maybe he's Elijah. Still others think he's Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, who in the world would think that Jeremiah is coming back? I'm still curious about that. Or one of the prophets. And so then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? All right? Now that they've evaluated the phony views, now that they've expressed what the crowd is dealing with, what's your view? Okay. Now, again, in a training environment, I expect this was Sunday night at 7.30. This was a, this was a, a ministry workshop, pastor's ministry workshop here that, that Jesus was. But we might rephrase it. We might say, uh, what... Uh, what are the what are the Southern Baptists doing for uh, missionary outreach? What are the E Free Churches doing for their youth groups? What um what are the Awana programs like in the in the Presbyterian churches? Okay, and is that is the purpose there to to uh, to mock or ridicule any of that? No, it's to evaluate. Is to observe what's being done, and then bring it now to application. What, what do you say? Who do you say that I am? Or in these modern illustrations, um, what's Austin Bible Church doing in the realm of missions? What's Austin Bible Church doing for a youth group? What's Austin Bible Church doing in the Sunday school? Now, do we want to line up with what everybody else in the world's doing? No. Just whatever Bracken Houston does, that's what we got to do. Right? No. We could ask the same thing. What does Bracket Church do? But what do you say? Okay. Vital that we're able to evaluate. Particularly if you're going to have leadership. If you're going to be in the spiritual leadership of a flock. And so Peter, of course, has the right answer. He says, you are the Christ and the living God. And uh, this is where he pronounces the blessing. So anyway, we're going to get a huge, huge start on that next week. And I don't want to bite off too much here today. Any other questions? I may just let you go 10 minutes early and we'll save this for next week. I never answered whose. Bradley, I never answered your question. Uh-huh. Oh, oh, okay. Um, we are at a hinge event, and up till now, he's been proclaiming the Christ. He's been proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom is at hand. He's been saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the rejection of the crowds, the rejection of the religious leaders, the rejection of the nation, we have a hinge event here where he is starting to prepare them for the cross. And he is no longer anticipating the crown. He is preparing them for the cross. And starting with this event, um, you'll note that uh, there's a huge change here. And he warns them 
in verse 20, he warned the disciples. This is Peter and James and Andrew and all these guys saying, tell no one that he was the Christ. Tell no one that he was the Christ. From this time on, verse 21, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. This event is the key. And, and they weren't ready for it. So long as they're preoccupied with loaves, so long as they're wrapped up in earthly things, he had to get them focused on spiritual values. He had to get them humble to realize that they're just seeing with, with blurry vision and things are about to be made clear for him. And now he's prepared to say, look, I'm going to the cross. And he's got a year to get him ready. And uh, Peter, probably the other 11 wanted to say it, but Peter's the one that did say it, said, uh, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. All right. And uh, even, even to the very end, when they all scattered in the garden, even to the very end, you wonder, you know, John was the only one we know was standing there in faith. Well, where were the other 11? And they're, uh, he took a whole year to prepare them for this event. So this becomes a real, a real hinge. And we've been talking about it leading up. At what point did Jesus himself come to know that the tide had turned? At what point what did the Father reveal that to him? Did the Holy Spirit convict him that... that the, the, the public proclamation of the kingdom has now closed and that the private preparation for the cross must now get urgent. See, um, obviously that happened here in this, in this sequence of, of crossing the Sea of Galilee back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But at this point here now, he's convinced. And I think the phrase in verse 21, from that time, shows how pivotal this all is. From that time, that means starting now and every day after this until the cross. He's preparing the disciples for this event. And so, remember, Jesus was not tapping into omniscience. He knew what the purpose was. He knew what the plan was. But he didn't know the timing. He didn't know when. He didn't know. But now he's passed his final Passover for, for living. And he knows that the very next one is, is going to be it. And so he starts preparing his disciples. So that becomes a key, a key transition there. And I think it's um, important for us to understand the nature of the kenosis and how he emptied himself and how he did not have full omniscience and awareness of every single detail. He only had awareness of what, in his prophetic gift, what the Holy Spirit made, made clear to him at the time. Now he knows that he's, he's headed to the cross and he's preparing them for that. All right, well, we will get a jump on or we will get uh, uh, started on this next week then, Lord willing, rapture pending, and we'll uh, discuss what the keys are all about, the keys of uh, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and this should be exciting because the binding and loosing and the responsibility we have as church-age saints is that we operate in two realms. We live here on earth, but our priesthood is in heaven. And the, the impact that we have in the physical realm and the spiritual realm is, is uh, exciting to consider, and it's not simply Peter's unique prerogative as the first pope. This is a description of how a new creation was going to operate, something brand new that had never existed on the planet before, and that is called ecclesia, that is called church. And it did not, did not exist when he made this promise. He said, I will build my church, future tense. It was not yet in existence, and we will, uh, we will have uh, many things, I think, to glean out of uh, out of this chapter at that point. All right, Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for our time. We praise you. We, re we rejoice at how faithful you are. We thank you for taking the steps necessary. A little bit here, a little bit there. You get us to where uh, things are kind of blurry, and then you, you clear things up even more after that. Father, thank you for being patient. Thank you for... Uh, I want to thank the Lord for choosing 12 uh, knuckleheads that give the rest of us encouragement that, uh, that you are faithful and that you bring us along one step at a time. Thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.